Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I am Claire Campos O'Neill. And I'm Nicole Abshire. We are so glad that you have joined us today. This is another episode in our election series, and we had a fabulous guest with us. We spoke to Beth Stevens. She is a voting rights expert. She knows so much about voting. We were really grateful that Emily Eby put us in touch, and we had a wonderful conversation, and we can see why she recommended that we have Beth on the show. So Beth used to previously work with the Texas Civil Rights Project, and she was the voting rights program legal director. And subsequently from that job, she became the chief director of voting at the Harris County Elections Office. So we thought it'd be really great to chat with Beth because she has real life experience administering an election in a very big county, Harris County. She was able to share with us what it ha- what it's really like to get your hands dirty and administer that election and what happens behind the scenes. And as we were talking with her, we had all these new questions come up because like, who knew what this world was like? So it was really interesting and eye-opening. And we're very appreciative to her and the work she does and the work everyone who's connected to elections administration does, because we need these folks to be there to help us make sure our elections occur and are handled properly. And they do great work. So they are like real public servants. Nicole, tell us what you thought. Well, Another not-to-be-missed episode, Beth is incredible at breaking down how all this stuff works on the county level and really understanding the who's who and the what's what. So for sure that, and then special note, special shout out, because when we talked to her after we recorded, she wanted to make sure that she communicated to our listeners to make sure that you vote all the way down the ballot. Don't forget the importance of those local offices and how much effect they have on the ways that elections run. And so how critical it is to really vote all the way down the ballot, as exhausting as it might be in some of the bigger counties, that really is worth your time and energy to know who those folks are and to vote in the way that you want, right? Whatever way you want, but to vote all the way down the ballot. And the further down you get, the more local it is, the more those people's decisions really impact your life. So do your research. As always, we love the League of Women Voters. If you're unsure, check them out and listen to this episode. Learn a little bit more about elections administrations in Texas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. We are really excited to have Beth Stevens with us today. She's going to talk to us all about the work of elections administrators. And we thought this would be so timely because these are the people who help make our elections happen. And I was just really curious in our election series So who's actually like behind the scenes putting it all together and why is it different county to county? Why is my experience different than say like my dad's experience or my sister's experience? So this is great because Beth can tell us what's really happening and these decisions being made because she has done it herself. So thank you, Beth, for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're just excited to learn more about this. I'm very fascinated. But before we get into the fun election stuff, we like to get to know a little bit more about our guest and uh, how they got to where they are today. So can you tell us, are you from Texas? Did you grow up here? I am from Texas. I'm from a small town near Corpus Christi, Texas, born and raised. I was, go ahead. Yeah. So now you're in the Houston area, right? I'm actually in the Austin area. I've bounced around Texas quite a bit, grew up near Corpus Christi, went to undergrad in Austin, went to law school in Dallas, came back to Austin, and then was in Houston for a while working in elections. Awesome. Where did you go to law school? Yeah, I was going to ask about law school. Tell us about that. <laughs> yep. Went to law school at SMU. So That's where my mom for- and dad went to undergrad. So my ears always perk up when I hear college in Dallas. Yeah. What made you want to go to law school? So my post high school experience has been very much an amalgamation of my parents, which is a path in my life, generally speaking. My undergrad degree is in history. My mom was a history teacher for a very long time. My dad is an attorney. And so after I got my undergrad degree in history, it seemed very apropos for me to go into law school. And at the time, I didn't really know a lot about elections or about 
the nonprofit world, which I eventually went into. And so it was really eye-opening experience to go to law school, understand, find out about the inner workings of the law, and then how that led into elections and voting rights as well. So I'm going to assume with your parents' background that y'all did discuss politics. Very much politics were discussed in our house, mostly the adults sort of discussing this politician or that and how good or not good (laughs) they were doing. I grew up going to a family reunion for a week out of every summer. And one of the highlights was debate night when we a couple of family members got up and would debate whatever political issue of the day it was. And so very much grew up with that. This is how we express ourselves. This is how we talk about the things that we are concerned about. And to some degree, understand the other person's point of view through that debate process. Whoa, that seems so (laughs) radical to me. I feel like I had the opposite family where it's like, we do not talk about things that make anybody uncomfortable. So zip your lips. Yeah, like, get off of that. Don't touch that. that. (laughs) My grandfather later in his life, though, became very vocal. And it really shook the foundation of our family in a good way, actually. But he was just so passionate about things. Like, I think a lot of theoretical things that he believed as a younger man, he was really seeing how they turned out in a very practical way in his life as an older man. And it made him really change his positions. And so he was just like tape was off the mouth, fully talking about everything. And the like slightly unfortunate part about it. Well, let me start with the fortunate part, which was obviously that then it changed the climate of its teensy bit. In other words, like we were starting to hear things we'd never heard before. The unfortunate part, though, is that I think he was dismissed some, especially like by kind of the generation below him because he was older. And so I think that they were, oh, he's just a grumbly old man. And anyway, I just I really respect that your family was just so openly doing something that seems so radical <laughs> to me, but really shouldn't be radical, right? Just being able to advocate for what you believe and articulate that. And yeah, and to learn and that listen, skill. Wow. Right? Listening is an undervalued skill that we have now. So kudos to your family. (laughs) Thank you. It took a long time to realize, oh, this isn't how everyone operates. And maybe the sort of the escalated, elevated discourse might make some people uncomfortable. (laughs) Some of us are very allergic to conflict because we have no idea how to handle it. Yeah. But we're learning that not talking about these things is not serving us. So... We're trying to (laughs) bring more people in. And it's really great that your family modeled that. I am very impressed. You'll have to like maybe write out the formula, like how y'all did this. Other families can go do it for their reunions and then we'll get democracy back. This is probably (laughs) not an important question, but I'm just so curious. When they would have the debates, did each person honestly believe that point of view or was it more like debate style where you pick opposite sides and it's just sort of about debate skills? The latter. Yeah, the latter. So we drew out of a hat sort of what the topics were going to be and then assigned, usually assigned groups. And then they would discuss among themselves the best sort of argument for that and then choose a person to get up and debate. That's great. I love that memory. So tell us about voting rights. Did y'all ever debate about voting rights in these family debates? So we definitely do now. I think at the time, like me, we collectively didn't have the understanding of voting rights as a substantive issue. And that I think has evolved. And folks who are more politically active now, I think it's elevated to being its own standalone substantive issue, in addition to being the fundamental right that it is and tied so closely into all of our other substantive issues that we care about. That's actually really what got me interested in voting rights is in law school, in my first year, I was reading this book called Earth, E-R-T-H, by Bill McKibben. And it's an environmental book. It's about the impact that humans are having on our environment. And it was, quite frankly, very scary. And I walk away from it going like, oh, what do I do? It was 2008. It was the primary season of 2008. And so at the same time, very interested in the presidential contest. And so was getting interested in politics and became very aware over the course of that next six months to a year about how important voting rights is to all of the substantive issues that we cared about. And for me, that started with environmental issues and has naturally expanded from there into voting rights as its own substantive issue for me today. I'm really glad you're pointing that out. Sorry, Claire. Well, no, I'm just really glad that you're pointing out voting rights as a separate thing and not this presumed underlying non-examined sort of thing. Because I know that for me, 
This has been so educational. I had the conversation we had with Emily Eby, especially about the history of voting rights and you know, attending the webinar the Texas Civil Rights Project hosted. Like I it is one of those things that I have just taken for granted. And to realize finally, I think for me to understand what voter suppression actually looks like and is to look at voting rights as like you're saying, a issue of its own to be protected and investigated and valued. Anyway, I'm just really glad that you are pointing it out in that really specific way. Yeah. Well, and to me, it sounded like, and let me know if this is right, like voting rights was like foundational and it's hard to get to these other issues if we don't have this foundation laid. Is that how? That's exactly right. That's how voting ties into every other substantive issue that we care about. For me, that started out with environmental rights and justice, but has for other folks, it might be family separation back in 2017. Whatever your catalyst is to get into politics, to care about who we're voting for and what we're voting for, voting rights is the fundamental foundation to get you there. And it's its own substantive issue because those same folks and measures that we're voting on affect who gets to vote and how we get to vote. So it's all so interconnected. Yes. So can you tell us, what have you noticed about voting rights and the discourse, the policies around that throughout your career? Is it getting easier to vote, harder to vote? Like what's happening? And I know Emily told us a little bit about this, but I'm curious just from your perspective, what you experienced. Yeah, I think that like take a step back, like the overarching like the expression the arc of justice it bends towards justice right and we are backsliding right now so taking note that the road there the arc there how we get there is long windy and bumpy and we are right now on one of those on the mountain path but we're sliding backwards and that is not an accident there are folks in power who are purposefully pursuing that agenda but it's not new. And so I think that's the important folks to remember is it's part of our country. It is part of what's baked into the bedrock of how we vote in this country and who gets to vote. And we've made advancements. And right now we are seeing a lot of those advancements being rolled back. And so that I think can be a catalyst, right? It is scary. It is concerning. It can also be a catalyst for us to wake up and do something about it. Why do you think we're in a moment of backlash the right to vote is an extremely powerful right. It is also a fundamental, like we talked about, undergirds uh, the foundation of our democracy. Those in power and those who pay to be in power, meaning running big structures in our country, know that's powerful. We use our individual voice to vote. But when we speak collectively, like in the election that's coming up, it's extremely powerful. And it can be for those who see a threat to their own power a scary thing to hold. And so that, I think, is really the through line that is the reason for a lot of things that we're seeing right now that undermine our democracy is that folks in power want to stay in power and power for power's sake. And to the extent that they need to suppress the vote to do that, we'll do. And that's what we're seeing. Let's dive into what are those things? Do you know, it feels very up here. <laughs> I guess I, you can't see me right now. I have my arm way above my head. Esoteric, I guess, in a way, like what this looks like. So can you go into that a little bit so that people understand when we're talking about kind of the backsliding and the threat, what that really looks like in a person's life? Yep. So I want to talk about two very specific things that are going on right now. One is anti-voter suppression laws, anti-voter laws that are being passed both in Texas, but Texas is very much a model. So this, these laws are being passed in other states around the country as well. So our prime example that occurred about a year ago is SB1. It's this massive omnibus anti-voter bill that does a whole host of things, but one that is very tangible that folks can understand and I think relate to is the changes to our mail ballot structure. So in Texas, only certain folks can vote by mail. That includes the most degree is folks who are 65 or older. They're automatically eligible to vote by mail. And the law that changed last session was requiring that those folks provide an identification number on both their application as well as their mail ballot. We saw in the primary election back in March that so many people either didn't have the identification tied to their voter registration record as required because they registered to vote 50 years ago or they registered to vote in a time where that wasn't something that was regularly provided. And we had people in some counties, it was over 10% 
of mail ballots completely rejected because folks didn't have or didn't provide the identification newly required by SB1. So it's laws like that truly result in disenfranchisement that are being passed across the country that is truly backsliding. And another thing I think people can see in their own lives is disinformation about our democracy. And what that looks like sort of runs the gamut, but it very much includes rhetoric around the 2020 election and that it was stolen or things termed the big lie. That rhetoric takes all sorts of shape and form, but goes towards saying that the 2020 election was not accurate, right? President Biden isn't the president. And the folks perpetrating some of this are doing so in a way that is willfully misleading. And what I mean is so like true disinformation and knowing disinformation. So repeating debunked claims related to election machines, related to election workers, just all across the board, things that have been soundly refuted, disregarding that and moving through and passing on the disinformation. That part is especially troublesome because we know that the more people hear a thing, the more people are likely to believe the thing, even if they've been told it's not true. Yeah. Especially if it confirms to something that you already believed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to quickly share with everyone, because this has been on my mind a lot lately, is the difference between misinformation and disinformation. And misinformation is when you like mistakenly pass along something that isn't true. Like if Nicole and I shared a statistic here that was off, we didn't intend for it to be. We tried to correct it down the road. That's misinformation. Disinformation is like you're saying, Beth, is spreading deliberate falsehoods. You know that this stuff is not true, but you're going to share. It sounds a lot like propaganda. Propaganda probably falls under that bucket, but that's the difference. And it's everywhere right now. And like, like you're saying, it's the thing that frustrates Nicole and I is how hard it is for people to recognize and see how we just need more media literacy, because if it looks like it's true and it's coming from someone who has authority you're probably going to believe what they're saying. So that's hard. It's really hard to be in this moment. Absolutely. And to have folks that are in political power regurgitating this stuff, knowing it's disinformation. I feel like it's that knowingly part that really is what I get (laughs) hung up on. It has been debunked. You've been shown the evidence and yet you continue to perpetrate that same information. So it's really hard (laughs) on my heart and soul that you could and would knowingly. It's just anti-integrity, right? And so it's hard to imagine leaders doing that. The other thing that has occurred to me as we were talking about people in power wanting to maintain power, it's fascinating to me that the choice that we're talking about here with a lot of these anti-voter laws and disinformation, that the choice is to have this iron grip on power instead of just maybe just governing in a way that is more inclusive or would bring people along or would be a platform that could keep you in power without having to use tactics that are undermining and... Yeah, or being more persuasive. Yeah, like make your case convincingly and let people legitimately vote for you. Don't just do these other things. Okay, well, we're in a transition. (laughs) We're going to talk about elections administration. So my first question is, what is an elections administrator? And is this the same as a county clerk? So to answer your second question first, an elections administrator in Texas is not the same as a county clerk. However, in some counties in the state, the county clerk does administer elections. So an elections administrator is a specific role that is provided for with the Texas election code. And it's a nonpartisan role that the person in the county has to decide, do we want an elections administrator? And if they do, and they hire one, that person runs both voter registration as well as the operation of an election when it's time for an election. So finding your polling locations, putting voting machines there, helping hire election workers. So that's the difference in an election administrator and in the way that counties who do not have an election administrator, most of them run those two roles separately. Voter registration is often housed under the tax assessor collector, whereas the county clerk then runs the election. And so counties that have, a lot of counties have moved in the directions direction of an elections administrator where they take both of those roles and they put them into one office. Okay. So the election administrators, those are being put in place by the county commissioner's court. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Okay. I'm still trying to figure out county clerks. I know county 
clerks are, those are elected positions. That is a good reference point. So elections administrators, not only is the county commissioner's court voting to have one, then a body appoints the elections administrator. So nonpartisan person appointed by a body at the county level. A county clerk is very much an elected position. And they, if you have a county clerk in every county, so they have roles outside of elections, whether they run elections or not. They do things like have folks file different paperwork with them at the county level. They do birth certificates, death certificates, things like that. If they do not have an elections administrator, then that county clerk is likely the person who runs the elections in that county. Okay. Do you see that in counties like large and small, or is it said to be with more smaller counties? So now, and this has been changing over the last 10 years fairly rapidly, now most big counties have an elections administrator, and then small counties, it varies between elections administrator or a county clerk and a tax assessor collector. The biggest county that still has those roles separate in a tax assessor collector and a county clerk is Travis County. Okay. Thank you. I was kind of getting around to that because I was like, but in Travis County, I think it's different. (laughs) Yes. Those two offices are separated in Travis County. Uh, All the other four to 10 largest counties, most of them have an elections administrator. Okay. That's really interesting. It is. It's a provision that was added into the election code, oh, 20, 30 years ago. And it, it is sort of the trend across the country is the word that folks use is professionalizing that role. So you can hire somebody who's got different levels of experience related to elections to come in and not change with the political wins, right? Because they're not elected. And so the idea there is to have some continuity to the office and to the structures that are underlying running the elections, running our democracy. Yeah, that's what I meant by interesting, right? I just, like, it seems wild to me. Once again, learning these new things that just sort of blow my mind, but that there would ever be a partisan person in charge of elections. That's just sort of seems wild to me. I guess I had an assumption. Here we go again, that the person administrating elections would be a nonpartisan person slash office, whatever that looks like. And so right now, each county gets to choose one of those models? Yes. So under the election code, it's county by county. We all know this. We have 254 counties across the state. It's a lot of different decision points at the county level for how their elections are going to be run, starting with who runs them. Is it a financial decision? Like, I'm going to ask, like, what are the reasonings behind the choices counties make? Yeah. So there's a number of things that the counties take into account in determining whether to move the to an elections administrator role. One of them is financial in that you have two different offices with staff for each office to run the tax assessor collector or the county clerk. Now, those offices don't go away. You have an elections administrator, but you take the election and voter registration functions and put them into a different who ideally can have staff that share roles, right, can do some voter registration. But when it's not voter registration time, those folks can transition and help with running the election. So it can be financial. It's also it can be pro voter to put both of these roles in one office, because in my experience, and for my own self, people often assume that these roles are housed within one office. And so when you move to a county where they're separated, that can be confusing for folks to say, okay, we're 60 days out from an election. You need to register to vote this office. Now we're 20 days out from an election and you need to early go to this other office. That can be confusing for voters. And some counties do a better job of the existence of both offices than others. Interesting. As Nicole said, all this is interesting. Didn't know. Like it's different depending on where you live in Texas. So you were an elections administrator. Well, tell us about that experience. And I'm also curious for the counties that do choose an elections administrator, how do they decide on that person? What's the vetting process like? So one correction, I was the chief director of voting under our elections administrator. So Isabel Longoria was our elections administrator, and she was the first elections administrator for Harris County. Harris County just moved to an elections administrator's office in the summer of 2020 is when the commissioner's court voted to transition that way. And so the body that actually appoints the elections administrator is not the county commissioner's court. 
there is a body called the Election Commission, and it is made up of the county judge, the head of both political parties at the county level, the tax assessor collector, and the county clerk. Those five folks get together and they decide who's going to be the elections administrator. And they're, one of the questions about who, what makes a good elections administrator, kind of what skill set do they need? I'm going to describe, they need a bunch of skills, but I'm going to describe some of the main ones. One is being able to run an organization because the elections office is multifaceted, has many roles, all the way from starting at voter registration through elections, like running the election for the voter, but then returning the returns and providing those to the folks and the bodies that need to have the results of an election, right? So it starts early and it goes a very long time. And so running an organization with all of that comes with it from a budget to hiring folks to creating the structure of an office is very important. They need to know voting laws in the state. The Texas election code is like this thick printed out front and back. Not kidding. Yeah, it's huge. And that's with normal print. You can make it smaller if you use tiny. There is a robust amount of substantive information that somebody either needs to know or needs to be a very quick study on learning the relevant laws. They need to be adaptive. The current climate that we're in takes a lot of pivoting to respond to what the issue of the day will be. And so I think being flexible and adaptive is extremely important. And then an element I'm not sure everybody thinks about, but is I think very crucial is customer service. There are a lot of customers of an elections office, including first and foremost voters, but also including people like your election workers who are paid, yes, but very much using their own volunteer time to come run, help run an election. The commissioner's court, the just the public at large, right? So there's a lot of customer level and customer interaction that I think is crucial for an elections administrator and their office folks to be adept at. That's the question. You're giving us so much to take in. This is really great. But I am like, okay, yes, I get it now. I did not realize. Well, so I'm assuming, so let me know if I'm right or wrong here, that the elections administrator is a person selecting the different polling locations. Is that right? Ish. Okay. (laughs) So at a high level, the elections office is sort of nominating the polling locations. So they're coming up with the list of who did we use last time? Who still has a building? Who hasn't like decided they're not going to operate anymore? What happened related to particular polling locations? And then they take that list. This is for most elections in the state. That's the other caveat is depending on the type of election might be a whole different set of rules under the election. Most elections, you bring your list of polling locations to the commissioner's court who then reviews them, might ask questions, might say, hey, what about this location? And they approve them. Okay, so so it's like a a check and balance. Yeah, I guess what I'm curious about is like, for example, in this past primary election, I voted early. It was like two minutes. I was in and out, no lines, really easy. My dad, hi, dad, if you're listening, he likes to listen to the show. He lives in Bear County and he said he had to wait two hours to vote in a primary. And I was like, that seems excessive for a primary. So I'm wondering, why was his experience so different from my experience? So the other caveat is for primary elections, the elections office and the political parties have to work together to decide on polling locations. And so while you will have the commissioner's court sort of review and ask questions, the political parties play a heavier role during the primaries of where you're going to situate a polling location. The other thing to sort of keep in mind is counties are supposed to have a certain number of polling locations open based on a calculation provided by the election code. Assuming that they have that, if voters are sort of go to all the polling locations around the county, you will often have the situation where you don't have a lot of lines, right? If you evenly distribute voters across the different polling locations, it can be the case that you're in and out in two minutes. If you go to a highly trafficked location that there's just popular locations in counties across the state. I can think of a number in Travis and in Harris County that this is the day I vote and this is the place I vote is the feeling that a lot of voters have and for good reason, right? I've been doing it that way for a long time. That can can add to the potential for longer lines. And then the question I would have for your dad is, was there an issue at that location that was going on that was making the line? Or was it truly just there were a lot of people excited about voting that day? Because it really can vary on whether this is a what I would call a okay line of just people are excited and showed up at 7 a.m. the first day 
or is this we should be concerned about something going on inside of that location that's bottlenecking and causing a blind? Interesting. Another real world example that or a question I have is I heard that some universities will have polling locations. Some years they will, some years they won't. Is it again that collaborative process deciding if they're going to have those locations available and why it changes each election cycle? So it can always change each election cycle. We know for voters, that's not great. Voters, like all of us as humans, are used to habit. We have habits, we have the things that we've done in the past, and that's what we go to when we think about where do I need to go vote. And so in an ideal world, we'd have the same polling locations with sufficient access every election. That doesn't have real world possibility because things change. I will say on universities specifically, it is crucial for access, in my opinion, that we have a polling location on university campuses across the state, period. Just period, end of sentence. It is my experience that if you don't have folks going to the commissioner's court to say, we want a polling location on campus, or if you don't have somebody saying, elections administrator, knock, 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 we need a location there, that those will often fall to the wayside the fastest. And so it's not a good excuse. In my opinion, elections offices should be taking that into consideration when they're looking at their list. They should say, oh, wait, we have a large university. We don't have a polling location there. There's something wrong. And it often takes advocates to get folks to pay attention to that. We're making progress. There has been a bill in 2021 proposing a requirement of polling locations at universities of a certain size. And so we are making progress in that direction. But we're not perfect across the board. And there are counties in the state who do not have polling locations on some of their university campuses. So if you want a polling location in a specific area, you're like, this would be a great spot. So many people live here. You should go to the county commissioner's court and advocate at that place to let your voice be heard. Like, where should people go if they're like, we need this here? Why did this go away? Or why don't you consider this area? So there's two places at minimum. One, go to your elections office first and early. So this is an example of the timeline it takes to run an election. So the November 8th election, polling locations are decided and almost exclusively across the state locked down now. They were proposed to commissioners court in July, early August. That's how far in advance, because of other derivative things that have to go on in the elections office, those things have to be decided. And so if you know now of a location that you think next May or next November, your elections office should have right after this election, go talk to that elections office, let them know now. If for whatever reason, you're not getting anywhere, you haven't gotten that location sort of squared away, the next step is your commissioner's court because the elections office will take that proposal to commissioner's court. And that's a place that you can, in a public forum, advocate for your the area that you think a polling location needs to exist for that. Cool. I have a really practical question, which is do polling places, locations get paid for their space? So under the election code, public places by and large are have to provide their space to the elections offices so that you can have sufficient number of buildings to have polling locations. But private spaces, sometimes they will donate their space and then at other times they'll require payment. So it depends on how much they're going to charge to really see if the elections office is going to be able to afford it. So it's a mixed answer in you want to be able to pay the location, but it can't be so expensive that it becomes cost prohibitive. Got it. Okay. That's a good question, Nicole. I didn't even think about that. I just wondered. Yeah. Okay. So discussing all these differences between this county does it this way, this does it the other way. What is standard in Texas when it comes to elections administration? And then what is decided at more local level? I know we've talked about this a little bit, but can you give us like the bare bones of what they have to do? So I think standard at the state level is on election day, it will be 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. hours once, everywhere across the state. If you have an election, a polling location open, those should be the hours. During early voting, the days of early voting are dictated by state law. So we have Monday, the 24th of October through November 4th, Friday, November 4th, those two weeks are early voting. The hours that a particular county has voting open varies from county to county, depending on a number of things. One, the size of the county. Smaller counties under the election code get to have sort of not be open as long hours as larger counties. And 
within the required amount, there's some choices that the elections offices have to make, both small and large. So for example, some counties are required to have voting on Saturday or Sunday of that two weeks, but they can decide to have it for just the smallest amount of hours required under law, or they could have it for double the amount of hours required under law. And so there are really some choices like that at the county level that are crucial to providing access. We know that folks are moving towards voting during early voting. Like it used to be the bulk of folks voted on election day. Now it's closer to 50-50. And the trend is moving that direction because it's more convenient. And so you really need an elections administrator or whoever's running your election to be willing to have as many hours as they can handle open during early voting because we know it provides the most access to folks. So to answer your original question, there are sort of the structure around provided by state law, but there is a lot of wiggle room at the county level where if a county official wants to provide access, they have the ability to do that. And you're saying that is outlined in the election code. That's right. And SB1, is that outside of the election code or was that passed and then like sort of put into the election code? Does that make the, sense? the latter. Yeah. So SB1 is the name of the bill that was passed, but all of its text gets inserted into the election code. Makes yeah. that stack that you were talking about <laughs> bigger. Yeah. yeah. And we're talking thing. for listeners like a three to four inch book stack hefty, (laughs) basically. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between election administrators and the Secretary of State? And I guess just how the Secretary of State factors into this process? Yep. So the Secretary of State is the state elections official in Texas. This can vary from state to state. They are an appointed role. The governor appoints the Secretary of State, and then that is approved by, or presumably approved by, the state senate. When, like now, the state legislature is not in session, the person who's appointed by the governor acts as the secretary of state, even before they're approved by the Senate. And so our current secretary of state, John Scott, is acting as the secretary of state, even though there hasn't been a legislative session. Their role is to provide advice and guidance to counties across the state on the election laws. And that includes the state election laws in the election code, as well as federal election laws. I think by and large, that works fairly collaborative way with counties across the state. The Secretary of State has a whole office within it dedicated to that collaboration with counties. As you might imagine, in the current political climate we're in, sometimes that can get more tense depending on what county is contacting the Secretary of State's office. But the idea is collaborative process where the office is helpful to the counties and the counties are communicating with the state in a regular way. And I, as you just pointed out, the Secretary of State in Texas is appointed, but that is not standard across the U.S. Some secretaries of state are elected. That's right. Some are elected. Yeah, it really just depends on the state's office around that. So tell us about some of the challenges y'all encounter as election administrators, whether it's around laws that are being passed or just the political climate like we're talking about. What's making this job really hard right now? So actually can take SB1 and the disinformation and talk about those from the elections office perspective, because we know that they're affecting voters. They are also affecting those who are running our elections. On the SB1 specifically, the mail ballot example, the change to the ID number requirement, what that did to elections office across the state, passing that law in September, October of last year, and they require it be implemented by the time of the primaries, really was like putting an elections office on a tilt-a-whirl, saying, here's a robust new law, you must implement it for a very big election within months, and without any resources given by the state to do so. I think that's the part that you hear the phrase unfunded mandate. What it means is there's no money, there are no people coming with this very intense new requirements under the election code on a shortened timeline. Normally, a bill will pass during the spring legislative session and then not be implemented until the following November timeframe. This was tighter timeframe without any additional resources. So you had elections office across the state scrambling to make sure that voters had the information they needed to be able to comply with this new rule as well as internally to the county, implement new structures to be able to handle the new ID requirements for the mail ballots. That required 
people, power, money, time to really be able to implement. So that's the downstream effect or sidestream effect of of passing a new law like that without providing the resources to be able to implement it on the county level. And I was just curious, like, are these things easily interpreted? I guess I'm also imagining that when you sort of this new text or requirement comes across your desk, you also just have to figure out, okay, so what What does it mean? mean? (laughs) It's incredibly complicated. It is not easy to understand. And this actually dovetails with the Secretary of State's role. They are supposed to be providing guidance on things like the new law. When you compress the timeline, like the state did, the legislature did, this is true. The Secretary of State was putting out guidance as we were already mailing out ballots for the primary election. And really, these things are overlapping each other in time. And so truly trying to understand either for yourself or communicate with Secretary of State's office or whoever the relevant other person is just becomes extremely difficult in that short time and creates real hurdles for elections offices to be able to make sure that voters have the access they deserve. And then is it possible for different administrators and offices to interpret things different ways? Like, can there be confusion among... Like depending on your county, maybe they thought this is what that was requiring and this county thought something else. Yeah. I and mean, we actually saw that in real time last spring and into the summer. Uh, we got the guidance from the Secretary of State's office, but there's still this question of what X, Y, or Z means. And this county is doing it one way and this county is doing it a different way. And so that can have real world impact on voters that we try to... I heard actually somebody who programs computers talk about this of like, you come up with how you're going to program the computer and then you do full testing and then you roll it out to the user. That's sort of when you have an SB1, you need to do full testing. You need to explain the entire guidance and test, then roll it out to the voter. And the situation the legislature put counties across the state in was there was not time for that full testing in the same way. Man, I'm sorry, I'll have to go through that. That sounds really hard. (laughs) Well, because the other thing is I'm thinking about the implications of that. If you're the voter on the ground and you wind up feeling frustrated, that frustration then is going to be directed to who's most immediately in front of you without the knowledge of like sort of who's really responsible, right? Like you're just doing the best you can to follow the directives that essentially thrown at you. So there's also that level too of distrust. I would imagine that can build potentially with the electorate to just think like, what are these people doing? You're hitting the nail on the head. The tension it can create because there's a level of assumption the person running the elections on the other side is doing so with all deliberate measures rather than sort of riding the wave that's coming at them. And so for voters, that can be disheartening, right? Even if you hear we're doing the best we can under SB1, this is what the legislature said, the voter is still experiencing their own experience and saying, hopefully, okay, I'll try again next time, but I'm frustrated. And that has real impact on individual voters. I think that would maybe be a good point to transition into just the state of counties and their elections administrative offices. I heard a lot of people are quitting because this is a very hard job. More is being required of you. I was reading that in Gillespie County, the whole staff resigned. What's happening? What's going to happen for us, like for voters, when y'all are burnt out and there's few people left behind or no one left behind to pick up the ball? I also read that story and read similar stories. And this is happening not just in Texas, it's across the country. The thing it can do is throw part of the election into crisis and someone has to pick up the slack. I think that's the bottom line is someone is going to step in and run that election. Is it a neighboring county? Is it someone from the Secretary of State's office jumping in? Is it a new person from a different county office coming over to try to bootstrap this thing together? Someone is going to fill that role. And so being conscious of making sure that person feels supported so that they can make sure that voters have the access they need, I think is crucial. The other thing that election offices are facing is that disinformation we talked about with respect to what voters are feeling. They are getting the brunt of the elections offices are, the election is not run correctly, you're doing it purposefully, X, Y, or Z. The real story here is the people who run elections are neighbors. They're our friends. They're the people we see in line at the grocery store. Those are the folks on the ground running elections, both at the elections office, as well as volunteering to work elections on election day and during early voting. And so as much as we can, I think remembering that and telling that to our friends and family and neighbors, that's who's running our elections and not to sort of sow the disinformation that some scary person is running the elections. No, it truly is our 
friends in our communities that are doing that important work. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, yeah, like what else do you wish the public knew about the work that election offices do? What I wish folks knew is, or you're telling folks now, is how much time and energy goes into running elections. I've worked in voting rights volunteer side since 2008, 2016, sort of shifted my career this direction. And until I went and worked in an elections office in Harris County, I had no idea the breadth of the amount of time and energy spent getting ready for an election. It starts many months in advance working with stakeholders in the county to get ready for the election, choosing the polling locations, helping recruit election workers, find different resources that you need to run the election. All of that work starts so far in advance that I think a lot of folks have the perception that people who work in elections sort of don't do anything for a large period of the year. And then a month or two before the election starts, things get going. And it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. It is a year-round job to get ready for this thing that is so crucial to making our democracy work. And so I think having that, that just general knowledge of how much goes into it by folks at all levels of the elections office, I think is very important. Maybe that's the gift of this moment, right? It's stressful and it can feel very frightening sometimes, the threats that we're feeling against democracy. But if we had to find the silver lining, I think it is this, right? It is exposing the hidden mechanisms that we never stopped to think about what makes this thing actually work that we call democracy. And so I want to think of this as an opportunity to appreciate and value what really is behind the curtain or behind the ballot, however we want to like shameless plug for our podcast. But it is it really is an opportunity to look at who's been doing this work and who continues to do this work. And unfortunately, they're under so much pressure at this moment in time. But my goodness, if we can recognize that and support and all step up to the plate to really appreciate this, that would just be incredible. So I think I need to do that switch in my mind. Absolutely. I really like that silver lining. It really is an opportunity for us to know more about these processes that are so important to our democracy. And hopefully, folks get interested in wanting to be election workers and write and volunteer their time to help help this thing run. because It's so crucial. Yeah, if we can just uplift that, really uplift that. And I feel so much we're always like on the back of our heels, responding and reacting. So I love when we have these moments of like, what is a an offensive strategy. Of course, I don't mean that (laughs) right. Being on the proactive (laughs) strategy for like what matters and what's meaningful and putting that message out. Yes. And a good reminder to, if it's a long line, (laughs) to be gracious. These people are trying their best and stick it out. It's worth voting and waiting for your opportunity because we have to all participate to make this work. Y'all are doing so much for us. So thank you, Beth, for you and your team and all the other people that you help. Nicole, do you have anything else we should touch on before we move to our attention mentions? No, I'm just so grateful for this conversation, though. I just want to say that it's really like light bulbs going off so many important pieces that I just did not understand. And your knowledge is deep and so helpful. So thank you, Beth. Thank y'all. This has been fantastic. It's really good to talk to you. I've appreciate it very much. Yeah, I feel like I have a lot more questions, but we don't want to take too much of your time. So maybe down the road and another day, we'll dig deeper part two of elections administration. Okay, so let's move into our attention mentions, which is where we share something that has our attention, a show, an article, a book, experience we had recently. Yeah, is anyone ready? I'm I'm trying to like land on mine. It's probably gonna be a book. Same. I'm still landing. So if somebody else is feeling it, go for it. Uh, so I'll do mine. I mean, I already mentioned Earth by Bill McKibben. It, just mentioning that to you all made me want to go reread that Yeah. Book. Can you spell it one more time? Yes. E-A-R-T-H. Okay. And yeah, it just was really eye-opening for me. And this is 20, 2008. So there's, he may have a new book or something else more current to read, but it was definitely pivotal. And Bill McKibben, that name is so familiar. He's pretty out there on environmental science. I don't know if he's got any other areas of expertise. Yeah, I keep looking at my notes because I feel like some conversation I've had recently, his name came up. So I'll do my little research when we hang up to see why he's really ringing a bell. 
All right, I'll go next because this a little bit connects to Earth, which I haven't read, but I will go seek out at my library or I'll buy. I look at half price books a lot. They have great stuff. But I have been, I never finished this book, but I picked it back up recently. It's called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And the there's a subheading to the book. Let's see if I can find it really quick. I follow her on social media. She's a good follower. Oh, yes. It's okay. The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And she talks about so many things, even voting rights and our climate crisis and our public education and how they're also interwoven. But too often we don't think about them as collective struggle. It somehow filters out based on your race. She just does a great job explaining these things very cohesively. Not quite like I'm doing at the moment, but her book is amazing. And when I was reading it this morning, she was talking about these articles she had been reading in the news about the climate and how our poor planet is suffering and how that anxiety it creates in her and how, interestingly enough, this isn't something that registers very highly with white voters for some reason, even though it affects all of us and we're all breathing the same air and drinking the same water. So it's just interesting why that's the case. And she really digs into that. So great book. Well, Beth, did we bring up Earth again? Is that really the attention mention you wanted to give right then? Yeah, I brought it up. Okay. For some reason, I thought you were like circling back, but then you had something else. And I was like, wait, did we interrupt her? Okay. Because I did warn you. (laughs) We do tend to interrupt. Okay. My attention mention is this one occurred to me that I forgot to mention before. So this is my shot. The Revisionist History podcast, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, and one episode in particular, I love the podcast in general, but there is one episode in particular that still sticks out in my mind. And it was about Brown versus Board of Education. And the title of that episode was Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment. And it's really interesting because it outlines the effect of Brown versus Board of Education, particularly in Black communities and on Black schools. Like it just decimated the education infrastructure of schools that had previously been exclusively Black. Like the effects are still felt today, right? There's not as many Black teachers. Anyway, really is an interesting take on the actual effect of Brown versus Board of Education. So Revisionist History Podcast, Miss Buchanan's, oh goodness gracious, Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment. Thank you. That's my... Can I make one more now that you said that? The podcast Throughline, NPR's podcast, have you heard of this? I listen to a lot of NPR, love 1A, but I have not listened to Throughline. So they take their shtick is they take a current event and they tell you the history of it in an hour. And so it's different current events and it goes back to 2019. And so when I heard the first first one I heard, which was from 2020, 21, I went back and started listening to all of them, and which is a little mind bending to go back and listen to them talk about a thing that was current in 2019. But it is so well done. I just highly recommend. Yeah, they're really good. Thank you. We love a good podcast recommendation. Yes, yes we do. Because while we're podcasters, we love listening to podcasts and sharing it with our listeners. Because if you like this, you probably are looking for others. <laughs> so here's a couple to add to your list and to subscribe to. And don't forget to subscribe to our show. But thank you so much, Beth. This was great. I learned a lot more. I had questions. I didn't even know that I had questions. Like, <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> thank you all so much. I really appreciate y'all having me. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media, and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.